Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, March 31st, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this talk, historian Blanche Wiesenkluck, in conversation with Douglas Brinkley, explores the close and sometimes contentious relationship between Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. Welcome. Blanche, you were born in New York City. I am. And in the Bronx. In the Bronx. And... And so is Eleanor Roosevelt. Did, did, did that have any interest when you, were, when you started finding out that Eleanor Roosevelt came from the same city you're from? Um, no, but when I was president of Hunter College Student Council, I invited her to give a talk at Roosevelt House. And this was like 1961. And she gave a splendid talk. She walked into the room, and the room was electrified. And at the end, she said, Wonderful things are happening in the South. Go South for freedom. Wow. And so we took two buses from Hunter College and went and sat in in North Carolina. And that was uh, a journey that changed my life. And did where in North Carolina did you go? Durham. You went to we, you know, and we went around North Carolina, but we were based in. And the faculty of you know Duke and the University of North Carolina was really, they helped bail us out, um, and they gave us space uh, at their homes. Uh, we were talking about Virginia Durr at one point in Alabama. Yeah. She supported the students who came on the buses to Alabama. And, uh, you know, there really is were, a... At that time when you met Eleanor Roosevelt, were you a political being? Did you consider yourself a New Deal Democrat or anything, or for JFK, or what was your political inclination? Well, it's so. really interesting because Eleanor Roosevelt, that trip changed my life. I was an activist, uh, but I was entranced by Ayn Rand. And then when I went south, I realized that Ayn Rand was full of crap. (laughs) (laughs) So I owe it all to Eleanor Roosevelt. And did you start reading some of her, like, My Day columns or her autobiography? Did you start immersing yourself in her? Not till later. Not until much later. I mean, I went off after Hunter. I I had a a fellowship to Johns Hopkins University, and I was in international relations and really military history. But then the war in Vietnam happened, and that changed my life. So we founded what is now the Peace History Society, and I'm very proud to say the Peace History Society exists from 1964 on. And today we have members in 120 countries and thousands of members of historians who do peace research. Well, you know, I don't know if everybody knows you from Eleanor Roosevelt, but you wrote one of the defining books on Dwight Eisenhower, 
the declassified Dwight D. Eisenhower. Um, how, how do you, all these years later, how's Eisenhower, uh, how, how does he seem as an American president to you? <laughs> is he, is he, or do you feel that he was a great president? Or well, let me, let me go a little bit slowly yeah. there because in some ways the Eisenhower book was one of the, again, game changers. Yeah. Um, I went, I had a syndicated column and in 1972, uh, I wrote a column saying all real progressives should vote for George McGovern, the true heir to Eisenhower's foreign policy, because Eisenhower said he wanted World War II to be the last civil war to tear humanity apart. And he had warned us about the military-industrial complex, and so I thought he was really a peace activist. <laughs> And when I went to Abilene, Kansas, everything I wanted to know was secret, classified. They'd come with trolleys of empty boxes and notes um, saying, this is unavailable, it's secret and classified. And so I always said, you know, being born in the Bronx, grew up, uh, never go anywhere without your gang. I took the first plane out of Abilene back to New York and called a meeting of some of my pals who were journalists and attorneys, uh, Mike Ratner of CCR and historians, and we founded something called FOIA, Inc., the Fund for Open Information and Accountability, and... uh, supported the, Bella Abzug was in Congress, the Freedom of Information Act, and um, then I learned more of the truth about Eisenhower, everything about the overthrow of Dr. Mohammed Mossadegh in 1953 had been secret, empty boxes, but then we found out the truth, and then that was probably the worst thing he did, but he also overthrew in 1954 the democratic government of Guatemala, Ben's government of Guatemala. And so my book is called A Divided Legacy of Peace and Political Warfare. And it's, uh, in some ways, it's a tragedy and more and more material is coming out now. And um, so it's even more divided than we think. Well, I wanted people to realize that you've had this activist history um, and you were a, a leading Cold War scholar. Uh, but... In that incredible moment, you're meeting with Eleanor Roosevelt. But let us. What was her childhood like? For people that don't know, what was it like, from you know birth to say you know 20 years old? You know, Doug, that's such an important question because you really have to wonder how Eleanor Roosevelt, born to a family of privilege, the niece of Theodore Roosevelt, president, um, how she became somebody who devoted her life to people in want, in need, in trouble. And the, the way to understand that is to understand her family history, which is that her father, who she adored, died at the age of 34 of alcoholism. Eleanor Roosevelt was, and her mother, who was not very nice to her, um, essentially turned her face to the wall. We know enough about alcoholism, the family disease. Her mother died when Eleanor Roosevelt was eight, and her father died when she was 10. And she is brought up by a very stern grandmother and surrounded by uncles and aunts, every one of whom 
is an alcoholic and, um, you know, took those 20, early 20th century drugs, laudanum. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have CBD and pot, but they had laudanum. <laughs> so she's surrounded by, you know, we know she had three locks on her door at some point to keep out one or the other of her uncles. Um, and her life is quite difficult until she goes to Allenswood School where she is recognized as a brilliant young woman who writes very well by this extraordinary headmistress, Marie Souvest. And I always say, for those of you who are scribblers out there, there is no biography of Marie Souvest. Her papers are in London, to the best of my knowledge. You need to be bilingual, which Eleanor Roosevelt was. Um, so she goes to this wonderful school. Marie Souvest essentially recognizes her talents, her leadership qualities, her ability to write creatively, and Eleanor Roosevelt's life becomes one of study and adventure. And at the end of her life, she says, that's what life is, endless learning and always adventure. Well, that, oh, and how, how did Theodore Roosevelt influence her? What, what was his, what was, she was the niece of... Well, Theodore Roosevelt um, obviously was a good uh, uncle figure, and he too recognized that she was a very special person. Um, but the, the powerful influence for study and for um, a life of achievement is Marie Souvest. When we deal with uh, Eleanor's father, who she adored, as she said, um, it, it, there are some people feel he committed suicide with his throwing himself out a window. Do you consider his death a suicide? Well, I can, he died of alcoholism. Yeah. You know, um, by the time he died, uh, he was in pain. All You know, his organs had collapsed, his liver was ruined. He, so I don't know if it was a suicide. So my, my alcoholism is suicidal. I mean, I, so one could say that. But he never, um, he couldn't recover. And Eleanor Roosevelt's commitment to work all through her life to make life better for all people in want, in need, in trouble, people just like the members of her own family. How old was she when she met Franklin? Um, 16 or 17, they become immediately, she returns early. She's not permitted to graduate. Um, and she's very sorry. She has to come out when she's 18. So she does. And she meets Franklin at one of the society dances and they get married. And was very quickly... And was there any, um, was there a stigma back then for marrying somebody with that direct uh, bloodline? You know, you were fifth cousin. Fifth cousins once removed. Um, I don't. Or was there nobody cared? I I think that um, perhaps Sarah Delano Roosevelt, her her mother-in-law, her schwiger from hell, um, (laughs) was very sorry that FDR married 
Eleanor Roosevelt, not because they were fifth cousins once removed. I mean, that would keep the good genes going, but because of her family tragedy. And she thought, well, we don't want those genes replicated. Um, so they're, you know, Sarah Delano Roosevelt's a really fascinating sidebar throughout her life. And did they, are there any times that they seem to get along? Oh, yes. A, what well, she really changes politically. Um, they agree on all the very controversial issues like race. Sarah Delano Roosevelt is the woman who introduces Mary McLeod Bethune to Eleanor Roosevelt because Mary McLeod Bethune had been at parties at Sarah Delano Roosevelt's house. And, you know, that is a surprising yeah. uh, connection. But, it, yeah. What was, so what was the, it like being married to Franklin Roosevelt in, say, the 1920s? And what were the highlights of their marriage, the, the, the wonderful times, and what, was the, what difficulties did they have? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Eleanor Roosevelt found out about Lucy Mercer in this really tragic way. FDR comes back from, he's assistant secretary of the Navy during World War I, and he comes back from a trip to Europe with the flu, the 1918 flu, and um, she's taking care of him and unpacking his luggage, and there are all the letters from Lucy Mercer, who had been Eleanor Roosevelt's um, assistant, and uh, she they had been friendly, and Eleanor Roosevelt's really a little bit stunned and shocked and hurt. And for, really, it is the end of that phase of their relationship. And they go on to have a partnership. Um, They don't get divorced, although Eleanor Roosevelt says, you know, I offer you a divorce. And Sarah Dillon, I mean, it's clear that it would destroy any possibility of a political career had they gotten divorced. And so they really develop um, a his court, her her court relationship. Um, And when I uncovered some of the relationships that Eleanor Roosevelt had, I I wrote, you know, I don't know if she's making love or keeping score. Um, You know, there's Earl Miller. And if and tell, you, tell us who Earl Miller yeah, is. Yeah. Earl Miller is assigned to be her bodyguard. And there's one picture in, uh, I guess it's in volume two, with Eleanor Roosevelt and Earl sitting at poolside, and he's in bathing. I mean, he's so handsome and so muscular. And, you know, so why not? <laughs> um, and it's the one relationship, Claire cost my partner and I disagree about Claire says she wouldn't have risked it but why not you know um and he he's really very dapper he's political and he gets her uh the horse dot that she rides every day they ride together um and they shoot together and they play together and they travel together um and that's one relationship, and FDR has, you know, uh, 
after Lucy Mercer, he has Missy Lahand. And then um, you probably know more about Missy Lahand than I do, but Eleanor Roosevelt yeah. treats Daisy Missy Suckley. Lahand, and Daisy Suckley. Um, but Missy Lahand moves into the, their homes, and Eleanor Roosevelt really treats her with respect and their friendship. And she's sort of grateful to Missy Lahan, the second wife. Thank you very much for dealing with all those things that uh, Missy Lahan deals with. Um, so when does she become um, so politically active, Eleanor Roosevelt? What's her learning curve? And was she? Uh, when did the civil rights movement touch her in the sense of wanting to be a warrior in that cause? Well, before... She's a civil rights activist. She's really very important in, you know, the women's political movement. Um, After women get the vote in 1920, it's clear that women have no power, no voice, and Eleanor Roosevelt gets very involved with the women's democratic movement. And And one of the things that astonished me is how much Eleanor Roosevelt wrote. I mean, she's really a writer in addition. I mean, we know about my day from 1936 to the end of her life. But beginning about 1920, she's editing this magazine for the Women's Democratic Party. Um, But, you know, she edits this magazine for about 10, 15 years. Sometimes her name's after the presidency. Her name's not on the magazine, but she's still actually the editor. Um, and she writes columns, you know, monthly columns, weekly columns, columns for all kinds of... I don't really... I don't think I've ever counted how many columns she wrote, but it's countless, in the thousands. Um, and so she's very involved with the women's... You know, women have to have power. Then she's very involved with all the steps to the New Deal... And then, um, I think it's 1939, when she's at the Southern Conference for Human Welfare with Virginia Durr and uh, with Mary McLeod Bethune and with the women and men of who are really beginning to say segregation has got to stop. Um, we're not in the war yet. But segregation has got to stop. Before that, in 1934, she gives her most important speech to end segregation in public schools. They're closing schools, not unlike today. They're closing schools all over the country, and schools are segregated. Eleanor Roosevelt is in West Virginia, and in April 1934, she gives an incredible speech in which she says, we have, how stupid we are not to invest as much as we can invest in the education of the next generation. Moreover, we must realize that we will all go ahead together or we will all go down together. 1934, and that's the beginning. And... um, She becomes a life member of the NAACP. She supports her friends in the NAACP. Um, Justice Marshall uh, calls her Lady Greatheart, 
um, he is then head of the NAACP in the 30s, and, he's, and he writes that Eleanor Roosevelt was Lady Greatheart, and he gave the race movement energy and focus because she was always there and always with us. Eleanor Roosevelt did a lot, but FDR, he said, didn't do a damn thing. But together they, be, they were an effective political tandem. Team. Yeah. And um, did, is, what was it like for her as First Lady after FDR wins? Does she enjoy being called eventually First Lady of the World and the title First Lady? Or did she find that sort of off-putting? Um, I don't know that she... At first she didn't take it seriously and she, was, she called herself the reluctant First Lady. She actually wrote that she was very reluctant. But, I, you know, she got used to it. On the other hand, she was incredibly modest. And, she, and her modest, she could never believe that when people stood up and cheered, that the applause was for her. Even at the end of her life, when she is the first lady of the world, she's landing somewhere in London, and she says to somebody she's with, in the plane, oh, there must be somebody important on the plane. They've laid down a red carpet. And it never occurred to her it was for her. And that was genuine. That was, you know. So she didn't deal with titles for herself. She didn't deal with acclaim. She was, you know, she really was a selfless uh, activist. With a great democratic spirit. With a great democratic spirit. And her interest in human rights, which matures over a period of time, and her name's almost synonymous with human rights. Where does that become a distinction, civil rights and human rights with Eleanor Roosevelt, or are they just one and the same? Well, as Thurgood Marshall said, you know, LBJ names him to the Supreme Court, as Thurgood Marshall said, she made the connections. So she goes to places that are, you know, like she goes to Detroit while Detroit is having a race riot. Um, she's, she's fearless, and she stands up for justice. All through, she's very, when she goes during World War II, when she goes to England, she's really stunned by how integrated everything is in England and how integrated the military is in England. And she's horrified by the lingering aspects of segregation among the troops. Um, In fact, in England, there are signs on various pubs. This pub is for English citizens and um, troops of color in the United States because there was so much bigotry and fighting between uh, black and white troops. And Eleanor Roosevelt sees that, and she writes to uh, the military leaders, you've got to change this. She, you know, she's really pushing and pushing and pushing to integrate the military. And she would visit soldiers in hospitals, and if she didn't like it if they, if an African American wasn't getting the same treatment Absolutely. as um, as a white soldier, for example. Um, what about her My Day column? I mean, it's so unusual. First Lady writing and writing, like you said, and appearing in newspapers. She's almost like a Will Rogers like figure in the sense of just appearing everywhere. Um, did she continue to feel that was the best vehicle for her voice? 
through her columns, and do you find her columns compelling as a whole? Well, they really are. Um, and it's sort of interesting, you know, my day column, um, the origins of that, the origins of that. Um, <clears throat> she writes all these long, long letters to her pal, Lorena Hickok, who is a journalist, and it's Hick who says, you tell me all about what you're doing. The whole country wants to know what you're doing. Why don't you write a column and tell the whole country what you're doing? And this amazing column, which begins in 1936 and lasts, you know, to the end of her life, is syndicated widely. She's, she is one of the most syndicated um, columnists in the country. About 300 newspapers carry her column. And it is, and she's very bold. Um, in, 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 did she use the calm to promote Franklin Roosevelt and her husband? And I mean, what, what's what's their political relate? What's how are they working together when FDR wins four presidential elections: 1932, 36, 40, 44? What's her role on the campaign trail? Well, she is a, an absolute supporter of her husband. She never criticizes him, but she does. He says to her, and and this is part of their partnership that's truly fabulous. He says to her, essentially, if there are things he can't do because of the nature of the democracy. If you look at the Democratic Party, it's made up of what? Irish Americans, German Americans, Italian Americans, and Dixiecrats, what we now call Dixiecrats. And so there are things that he cannot do. But he says to her, make me do it. Go out there and build a base. Go out there and build a movement. And so part of her responsibility is to push him forward by pushing public opinion forward on the issues where she is far ahead of him. And the two big issues for us as we look at the 40s, as we look at the World War II period, are race and rescue. The failure to rescue is one of the great tragedies of World War II. Um, And then we have human rights. You said, how does civil rights lead into human rights? Um, They're connected, but it's not just about race. It's about everything. And Eleanor Roosevelt really understands very early that we're not going to have human rights. We're not going to have justice. We're not going to have peace unless we also have economic security. And there's a wonderful book that she writes. Can I? Sure, please. Can I quote? I love this. Um, this excerpt for this moment. It's chapter 13. It's called The Moral Basis of Democracy. And she writes it in 1940. And she talks about how as totalitarian dictators are storming the globe, it's time for us to pause and ask what is our democracy 
all about? And how can we preserve it? And she goes into the history of our democracy, the right to freedom and equality and political liberty and the rights and responsibilities of all citizens and habeas corpus. And she says, the 130 million people who make up our great nation come from every nation on the globe. Asians, Africans, Europeans, Latin Americans truly makes us the melting pot of the world. But we have allowed a situation to arise where many people are debased by poverty or the accident of race and therefore have no stake in democracy, while others appeal to this old rule of the sacredness of private property rights to retain in the hands of a limited number the fruits of the labor of many. Today, issues of economic opportunity and security define our problems. It is often said that we are free, then sneeringly free to starve. That is not an amusement. Nobody can say the Indians, by which she means the indigenous people, or Negroes, the word used then, of this country are free. Racial prejudice enslaves and poverty enslaves. And then she goes on to say, political democracy requires economic democracy, while greed debases it. And finally, she says, we have been too devoted to the gods of mammon. Humanity must rise above purely selfish interest and take responsibility for one another. Democracy involves the spirit of social cooperation. Powerful. Powerful. So Eleanor Roosevelt was a social democrat. (laughs) And she would like Bernie Sanders' rhetoric. (laughs) In my opinion. Does, um, did she, did, what were the intimate moments with Franklin during the presidency? Do, I mean, did they travel together? Did they have uh, joyous times together, even though their marriage was strained at times? Yeah, um, they did have, they did travel together, and they did enjoy lots of things. They also, I mean, they loved the national parks. There's a guy named Doug Brinkley. Um, I have this book with me. Um, rightful heritage, Franklin D. Roosevelt in the land of America, and national parks, um, rivers. She didn't like to sail, but she loved to swim in rivers. Um, You know, so the outdoors, they share a great love for the outdoors. And they did travel together in which his mission to her was to say, um, you're my eyes and ears. Tell me what people are thinking. And she reports what people are thinking. Ultimately, 
as he gets increasingly fragile and unwell, that's a little bit too much because she comes to him at the end of the day while he's uh, about to have his drink um, with a bucket of things to do. Um, and Would she you know, drink with him? No. Did she no. drink throughout her life at all? Um, she would have little sips of wine and um, an aperitif on occasion, but basically she didn't drink. And they both liked kind of folk, folk ways and folk stuff. Um, you know, I've, I wrote about the CCC and the she, 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 and, uh, but all of the, um, you know, forestry camps and the like. Well, what did she, was she part in your mind of like an America beautification movement? Well, yes. And one of the things I just learned, not just, but when I read your book, is that she becomes involved with the Audubon Society and um, really becomes part of the crusade to save the birds and to stop feathers, having feathers in fashion. And there's, you know, some many pictures where she has feathered hats with big feathers and that all stops and she wants to say, you know, she really like FDR. She sees the unity of the environment there has to be, we have to conserve the earth, we have to ensure the future, and she makes the connections that he does, and she's very inspired by all of them. Through all that, let's imagine they're traveling together. Was she um, a caretaker of him? Did she help with his braces for his legs? And uh, she had a, it's quite a drama to deal with a husband with polio, and did she ever but, worry that she would contract polio? Well, she didn't. But I must say that after, you know, while they're living a divided life, it's after then that he gets polio. And Eleanor Roosevelt really is his primary caretaker, his primary caretaker. Moreover, his mother says, oh, good, now you'll come back to live in, you know, our home. And that'll be the end of that. And Eleanor Roosevelt with Louis Howe makes sure that he has political interests and, you know, really promotes his political future while she's taking care of him. Uh, Then he goes off to, you know, uh, Warm Springs. She visits Warm Springs with him. Um, But basically, she's not his primary caretaker, but she was there when he needed her most and absolutely generous in her in her commitment to his health and well-being and to his political career. Is there any record of Eleanor Roosevelt on um, the Holocaust, on dealing with issues of anti-Semitism in America? She, did she ever write about it or can it, speak about it publicly? She did. Um, <clears throat> you know, he, and here enter Trudelash. Gertrude von Adam Wenzel Pratt Lash, who meets Joe Lash in 1940, and Eleanor Roosevelt gets all involved in their relationship. But Truda Lash is really a great hero. Um, It's Truda who is, uh, she's an anti-Nazi German journalist and educator. Um, Her newspaper in Berlin is attacked by the Nazis and her home is is savaged by the Nazis. She's then married to Elliot Pratt, who is one of the 
most affluent men in America. And when Hitler comes to power in 1933, they leave Berlin. So, and Schroeder's connection to the American Friends of German Freedom is really very important. Um, and there's a group called the White Rose, the Weisse Rosa. And Eleanor Roosevelt on the... the so Eleanor Roosevelt gets very involved with the Varian Fry rescue operation. And at one point, before she died, at her home in Martha's Vineyard, I asked Truda, who had been a friend, I asked her why nobody ever connected her to the Varian Fry rescue operation since nobody does, but it's clear to me that um, she was responsible for this one major rescue operation. Varian Fry goes to Marseille and gets about 2,000 refugees out, Um, and she banged her fist on the table and said, don't write that. And I said, well, I'm going to write that. Why not? And over time, um, she said it was to protect her family. And I thought maybe she meant her children, but Joe didn't protect her children in his books. So her children ultimately told me she had two brothers who fought here, two brothers who fought there, and a mother who was such a Nazi she would never meet Joe. And Trudy didn't want her story known, but her story is really incredible. And I mean, somebody needs to write that story. Another book that somebody yeah, needs to write. somebody needs to write and that the, story. And the, uh, Joseph, who tell the Lash wrote, before you wrote your biographies, he right. wrote, what was that considered the best biography pre-yours? Right. Yeah. And that's because he had access to Eleanor Roosevelt? Well, um, he did. He was the chosen son, the favorite young man in her life. And she wanted him to write um, his her biography. And he was the good son, so anything Eleanor Roosevelt wanted in the book is in the book. Anything she didn't want in the book is not in the book. And I have to just pause and say, Joe is a friend of mine. And he had blurred my Crystal Eastman book, which was published by Oxford, uh, with a blurb that said, this is a book that should stay in print forever. And you get to be friends with people. So when the Hick material came out, I called him and I said, Joe, what's up with this? You have, there's no mention of Hick in anything you've ever written. And, I, and he said, well, I hated her, but let's have dinner. And so we met and we had dinner and he said, you should do it. And I said, don't be ridiculous. I'm I'm a military historian. I do hard history, <laughs> is what I... Goddess, forgive me. Because um, I, how I got the Hick stuff is that I was in Abilene. Tell them who Hick is. Okay. What's the career of, of her? Lorena Hickok was a, a great journalist assigned to cover Eleanor Roosevelt in the 1933 election. And at first, she's really furious that she's being assigned a lesser... a woman... But then they become friends, and um, at some point, in order to live uh, at the White House, which she does, um, she quits her job as a journalist, which is really the most unfortunate thing that happens to Hick. Um, But they are, you know, uh, very close. And... um, 
one of the things that I've learned is that Eleanor Roosevelt was easily bored. And she's a, she's a romantic, but she's a serial romantic. So the uh, intense relationship with Hick doesn't really last that long. It's over by 1936. And Eleanor Roosevelt moves on. And there's something kind of amazing what's going on right now is that there are about four books on Hick. Yeah. Um, two nonfiction and two novels, and there's a third novel coming out. Um, you know, there's like a little hick ER industry, and that's fine. <laughs> um, but the the facts are sort of interesting because they are lifelong friends. And um, the, but let me go back to Joe saying I should do this book. Um, we he said he took me up to Hyde Park to show me around, to see what was there. And at that point, this is 1982, Eisenhower book had just come out, uh, I had an epiphany because Eleanor Roosevelt said, I don't care about power. So Joe wrote that she didn't care Care about power. (laughs) And then I knew I had a story, and I thought I could finish it by her centennial in 1984. That was my goal, but I didn't make it. Anyway... um, but it was really all because of Joe that I... When you started doing the multiple... Bi- did, were you trying to do a one-volume biography of Eleanor yeah. Roosevelt? And, then, and it just got bigger and, it, and bigger. Because she kept growing and changing. I mean, she is the most amazing woman um, in that I know. I'm um, going to take some questions from the audience, but one last question from me. When Franklin Roosevelt dies, what, what's her reaction to that? How, and how does she cope with his death, you know, after April 12th, 1945? Well, one of the things that um, she commits herself to, uh, I mean, he is with Lucy Mercer when he dies, and she knows that, but she forgives that. And she really devotes the rest of her life to fulfilling his vision. And she never takes credit for any part of that vision being her vision. Um, But if you read volume three, you see that a lot of the things he stood for, she had written first in her columns and in her books. Okay, here's one from the audience. Is there any other, I think I know your answer to this. Is there any other first lady who was more influential than Eleanor Roosevelt? Oh, that's such a good question. I don't know that there's any first lady who was... um, more influential. Uh, I'm but, sure for the, the years but, she was first lady. But, but she um, leaves a terrific legacy so that in terms of the environment, there's Lady Bird Johnson. In terms of all kinds of other things, there's Jackie Kennedy. Um, she was... Eleanor Roosevelt thought it was very interesting that Edith Wilson wanted to end the slums of Washington and the effort to end, to create better housing for poor people and people of color in Washington was a legacy of uh, the second Mrs. Wilson. Okay. Um, This one's besides World War II, what will be FDR's defining legacy in history? And what do you think Eleanor Roosevelt's legacy is? Uh, well, New Deal, 
I mean, now that we have a creature in the White House who wants to <laughs> debone the New Deal, we see how important it is. Are we real? You know, um, in 1943, when Hitler, Eleanor Roosevelt speaks to a group to commemorate the Weisse Rosa, the White Rose, the underground German uh, student leadership group. And, and it's the 10th anniversary of Hitler's book burning. And I read this to my class the other day because the creature in the White House has a budget in which he promises to close museums, libraries, public television, public schools, access to learning. And at this, in this speech, 1943, Eleanor Roosevelt says, the certain road to fascism, the certain road to slavery is to end access to education. And FDR access to education, to museums. I mean, if you look at what was constructed by the New Deal, by WPA, I mean, the libraries, you know, the schools, that's the legacy. And they, I wrote about the CCC planting three billion trees from 1933 to 1942, just astounding the tree army and soil conservation and the like. I like this question a great deal because I don't quite know the answer to it. How, how do you think Eleanor Roosevelt's sense of fashion and femininity compared to other first ladies? And did she have a sense of how people are going to perceive how she looked? That is <laughs> interesting. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, a lot of people thought that Eleanor Roosevelt didn't care about fashion, but actually, Esther Lape, L-A-P-E, and there's no biography of Esther Lape, <laughs> um, introduced Eleanor Roosevelt to her designer. And Eleanor Roosevelt had dresses, gowns, formal um, costumes made by one of New York's best and most interesting designers. There are also photographs of Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, you know, she didn't ride side saddle. But it's fascinating that she rode in blue jeans on occasion. Um, you know, so she had, she had a great interest in fashion and costume. And I think much more than people realize. Yes. Great. Uh, what was she like as a mother? <laughs> what are all <laughs> Okay. Um, a lot of people said that I didn't spend any time or enough time on her relationship with her children. And my answer to that was, well, I spent about as much time as she did. Um, I mean, they had staff. And Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, uh, I mean... She continues to support her children to the end of their lives. One of the reasons she continues to write is that they're needy and she continues to support them um, all through time. 
but she's a much more, more active grandmother, genial, right? I was going to yeah. say grandmother. And one of the grandchildren said um, that she would wait up for the kids to come home. Waiting up, reading wonderful books, and listening to medieval music, which is sort of wonderful. Very wonderful. And do you, and what is Valkill? Her, if any of you want to visit Valkill, if you go up to the Hudson River Valley in Dutchess County, it's a remarkable historic site. But what did Valkill mean to her? Well, she built Valkill with Nancy Cook and Marion Dickerman, and it was her escape. It was her home away from home, a few miles away from, you know, the big house um, where she had her own, uh, her own guests and her own life. And she had her own guests and her own life in New York in apartments that she had, including Esther Lape's home on 11th Street um, and at Valkyrie. And finally, her in the 19, or she's prominent with the United Nations and Declaration of Human Rights. She's a major figure during the Truman years and Eisenhower years, and even through John F. Kennedy. Uh, what was her role in Democratic Party politics after the death of Franklin? Well, she's she really is a leader in the Democratic Party. On the, le- the representing the left, Re- representing the progressive. Yeah the progressive movement, Stevenson. Um, Her commitment to uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, her negotiations, her ability to... um, She was really a diplomat. Um, And she says, we have to be able to talk with each other. So she has dinner for the Soviet... Excuse me, for the Soviet delegation. But not just dinner. She would get opera tickets... And, and concert tickets for the Soviet delegation because they liked music. And then they would discuss. And they didn't veto any part of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and that's really terrific. And her relationship, I mean, with India. I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt is very close to Hansa Mehta, who is a very important member. She's the only other woman delegate at the UN and it's Hansa Mehta who goes to Eleanor Roosevelt and says, excuse me, Mrs. Roosevelt, but you say all men are created. And if you continue to say that, it will mean all men. And hence it says all human beings, the first words of the Universal Declaration, thanks to Hansa Mehta, who is a big influence on Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, but her... Diplomacy and ability to negotiate is terrific. Then you get the fact that um, she compromises and agrees that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights should be for the covenants divided into two parts, the civil and political covenant and the economic and social rights covenant because the economic and social rights covenant were the Russian-inspired, everybody has the right to work. Everybody has the right to, you know, minimum wage. Everyone has the right to unions. And Eleanor Roosevelt knows that that will never pass at the United Nations. So she agrees to the two covenants, the separation of it. 
And it's really sort of interesting because the covenants aren't written until after her death, actually. Um, and they're presented, and then they're ignored until Jimmy Carter brings up the Universal Declaration. And finally, but he doesn't bring it to the Senate for a vote, finally it's ratified the Civil and Political Covenant. And do you know, does anybody know who ratified, who gets it ratified? Nobody what? ever does. Because it's George Herbert Walker Bush. And the Republicans don't want the credit for it. (laughs) And the Democrats don't want to give them credit for it. But it's really important to know that. And it's even more important to know that the U.S. has still not even had a conversation about economic and social rights. But for Eleanor Roosevelt, they were connected, united. We need both. And she starts saying so, you know, in 1934, in 1940. And when did she die? On November 7th, 1962. And how did uh, President Kennedy deal with her death and the funeral? And how did the country treat her passing? Well, she really is um, the first lady of the world at her death. Um, Kennedy had appointed her head of a women's commission, So she's head of this women's commission um, to see what the status of women in the United States is under Kennedy. And it's in that uh, she dies. Let me just say you asked about Eisenhower, um, who does attend her funeral with the others. Um, Eisenhower asks Eleanor Roosevelt and Esther Lape, who has fought for what we now call single-payer, to the end of her life, okay? So it was supposed to be what we call single-payer. National health care was supposed to be in the 1935 Social Security Act. And it, and it doesn't get in there because the AMA lobbies it to death. Eisenhower, in 1957, says, we have to have national health care for everybody, just the way we have it in the military, Everybody covered and their families covered. And he asks Esther Lape and Eleanor Roosevelt to join him in this struggle, and they do. But again, the AMA lobbied it, so what we got was the Health Reinsurance Act. And Eisenhower gives the PAM that he signs that act with to Esther Lape, who waves it in front of the press and says, Now this represents just a puny little bone (laughs) in the vertebrae of what I had in mind. And she fights for single pay until she dies at the age of 100 in in the 1980s. Um, So that's just a kind of... But Eisenhower is there in the game at the end. Blanche, I I could talk to you for hours about Eleanor Roosevelt. You're an amazing scholar. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.